It's fair to say that today, in the popular imagination, the 1920s are an overshadowed decade. The 20s feel, in retrospect, like a dreamy transition. It's a 10-year pause between the dark days of the First World War, which ended in 1918, and the impending storm of the Great Depression, which started in 1929. Now, there was plenty going on in art and technology, in culture and commerce. Flappers and Ford Model Ts, raccoon coats and 23 Skidoo, Bayreuth and Lou Gehrig, talking movies and big band jazz. Still in all, it does seem like the 20s are defined by what came before and by what came after. Politically, it was a stagnant era, a time when America was notably insular, not very engaged with or interested in the rest of the world. A return to normalcy was the campaign slogan for Warren G. Harding, who won the presidential election of 1920. But there was a lot churning away beneath the surface. Followers of our podcast know that we said much the same thing about that other post-war decade, the 1950s, the era that gave birth to rock and roll in America. In an odd spasm of public opinion that historians still struggle to understand, in the year 1920, America ratified the 18th Amendment. The manufacture, sale, and consumption of alcoholic beverages was now strictly illegal. Prohibition led, inevitably, to smuggling and the rise of crime syndicates, to black market gin joints and speakeasies, and to a shocking jump in the nationwide murder rate. American women attained the right to vote by virtue of the 19th Amendment in 1922. In retrospect, this has huge implications, but they are not really felt yet in this decade. That comes later. Similarly, the first commercial radio stations start broadcasting in the early 20s, but radio doesn't really take off until the following decade. The 20s were a great reading decade. Newspaper and magazine publishing was at its all-time peak in America. A brief look at authors who published major works during that era reveals an embarrassment of riches. Ernest Hemingway, Sinclair Lewis, Langston Hughes, and many, many more. In the summer of 1927, a priggish, fussy Minnesotan, name of Charles Lindbergh, piloted the Spirit of St. Louis across the Atlantic Ocean. Overnight, 25-year-old Lucky Lindy became something new in these times, something unprecedented. He became an international celebrity. On September 30th, George Herman Ruth, the babe, smashed his 60th home run of the season for the New York Yankees, who rolled on to win the World Series. So we've got some feel for the times. Here's what is important to our story. The 20s marked the beginning of the jazz age in American popular music. More about that in just a bit. But right now, let's head north and meet a small businessman. Quincy, Massachusetts, fall of 1927. A 39-year-old Armenian-American, Avidus Zildjian III, receives a fateful letter from his uncle Aram, postmarked, Bucharest, Romania. Avidus had come to America 19 years earlier in the company of a family friend 
who was in the candy business. Like so many American immigrants then and now, Avidus was fleeing persecution in his native land. He came to America with the immigrant's special drive, determined to seize what opportunities came his way. Avidus quickly became a proud and patriotic American. He married a bright young woman from a good Yankee family, Alice Sally Goodale. Sally and Avidus Zildjian were now raising two young sons, Armand and Robert. Through grit, determination, and no small amount of business savvy, Avidus made a good life for himself and his young family here in his adopted country. He worked his way up to ownership of the Commonwealth Candy Company, a busy firm that employed some 65 workers. Then the letter landed on his desk. It is with a mixture of happiness, sorrow, and a deep concern that I write you this letter. I regret that the time has come when failing health would soon make it impossible for me to continue to make these symbols for which our family has been famous for over 300 years. Avidus reacted to the letter with trepidation, wrote John Cohan in his excellent book Zildjian, A History of the Legendary Symbol Makers. Trepidation and more than little skepticism. As a boy, Avidus had worked in the Zildjian foundry and symbol factory in Istanbul. An outsider might feel romance over the storied Zildjian name and intrigue from the legendary secret bronze alloy, but not Avidus, not really. He knew from experience, symbol making was hot, difficult, exacting work, and dangerous at times, and there wasn't a whole lot of money in it. His life was in America now, with Sally and the boys, and he already had a successful business to run. Interestingly, the push came from Sally. She was intrigued by the history, and Sally Zildjian encouraged her husband to look into it more, to not reject the idea out of hand. In time, Avidus made a compromise decision. He would not go back to the old country to run the family business. Instead, he would bring the family business here. He arranged to bring his uncle Aram to America. Together, they would set up a foundry, and Aram would teach him the ancient art of symbol crafting, Zildjian style. Throughout 1928 and on into the following year, Aram Zildjian mentored his nephew. But even as Avidus diligently took in his uncle's expertise, he began to form his own ideas. Avidus decided he would combine the generational knowledge he was receiving from his uncle Aram, combine that with the experience he'd attained as a modern American business owner, the art and the science. By the middle of 1929, the factory had opened in Quincy. In the fall of that year, A. Zildjian and company fulfilled and shipped out their first orders. The Boston Sunday Post ran a piece about the new factory and the uncle and nephew who built it. Bustling in and out of the open doors of the shed which houses the foundry, one can see an erect soldierly appearing old gentleman. This penetrating man with the gray Van Dyke beard is Aram Zildjian. He has come here on a year's visit to impart to Avidus Zildjian, his nephew, the secret formula of this symbol process, in order that his business be handed down to coming generations. But against this brisk, sunny business page narrative of family traditions handed down, dark storm clouds loomed on the horizon. Just a few weeks after that first order shipped, 
on Black Thursday, October 24, 1929, that storm hit with devastating force. It was the single worst day ever recorded at the New York Stock Exchange. The following week saw widespread financial panic across America, and that panic cascaded around the world. Savings and investments were wiped out in a blink. And by the spring of the following year, one quarter of adult Americans were unemployed. The Great Depression was underway. Continuing a time-honored family business was all well and good, but what if nobody can afford to buy the product? Avidus Zildjian III was the scion of a proud family tradition, the embodiment of the American dream. But you can't pay the rent with tradition or make payroll with dreams. Avidus and his fledgling company stood on the brink. Preserving three centuries of family history was now the least of his worries. This was a fight for survival. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, friends. Fellow diggers, welcome to a very special edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. I'm Christian Swain, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs goes a little deeper, drilling down into specific topics related to rock music. This episode is a joint production created by the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project with the support of the great folks at the Avidus Zildjian Company. Just a couple of things real quick, and we will get right into it. We have a website, and you really ought to visit rockandrollarchaeology.com. It's all there. Podcasts, show notes, playlists, social media links. Come on over and hang out with us. Okay, business handled. Today's episode is titled, The Company You Keep. The epic story of Zildjian symbols and popular music in America. We open in Istanbul, capital of the Ottoman Empire. It's late spring. The year is 1618. The chant you hear is the dawn call to prayer from one of the minarets atop the Blue Mosque, established two years earlier in 1616. These iconic minarets gaze out over one of the world's great cities, capital of the Ottoman Empire, a polity that includes 15 million subjects, with boundaries that span thousands of miles in every direction. This great city and the empire it governs is many times the size of any contemporary European city or nation-state. Only the great empires to the east, the Mughal Empire in India and the Ming Dynasty in China, exceed the Ottoman in size and population. By the standards of the time, the Ottoman is a diverse society. The ruling class is Turkish and Islamic, but here in the crossroads city of Istanbul, there's a cosmopolitan attitude. A thriving merchant class includes people from many ethnic and religious backgrounds. 
According to the historian Paul Kennedy, author of The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, in terms of wealth, influence, and military might, in this era, the Ottoman Empire is at the apex of civilizations, the greatest of the great powers. Fifty years earlier, the greatest of the Ottoman rulers, Suleiman the Magnificent, had consolidated the empire and guided it into the front ranks of world powers. It might have been magnificent, but Suleiman's 46-year reign ended with his death in 1566. Suleiman was succeeded by a series of undistinguished rulers. The power vacuum at the top led to a century of government by faction, according to the historian Caroline Finkel, a noted expert on the Ottoman Empire. Reading Kennedy's and Finkel's respective accounts, we pick up a definite Game of Thrones vibe. Oh, okay, no white walkers or dragons, but competing factions, demented boy kings, murderous intrigue. They had all that and more at the Top Copy Palace, along with border unrest and potent adversaries at every point of the compass. In retrospect, we see this is the beginning of a long, slow decline for the Ottoman Empire. Here, in March of 1618, where we start our story, Sultan Osman II occupied the throne. Osman was one of those boy kings, all of 14 when he ascended. He fancied himself a poet and a composer, but his work is lost to history. Osman would rule for three years until he was assassinated. But here in the beginning of his brief reign, Sultan Osman II started something that would carry forward across the centuries right up to today. Now, we meet a young alchemist and metalsmith, Avidus Zildjian, first of his name, maker of symbols, and inventor of a secret technique that produced symbols of unrivaled quality. Avidus was born in 1596 in Armenia, a small mountainous nation that lies to the east of modern-day Turkey. Small but proud, at that time, Armenia already had well over a thousand years of continuous history, but Armenia was located in an unfortunate spot, stuck between the Ottoman Empire to the west and the Safavid Empire to the east. Throughout the 16th and 17th centuries, borders shifted, occupying armies came and went, and the locals paid the price. It's not clear exactly when Avidus came to Istanbul. It was in the company of his father, who was passing the alchemy trade on to his son. The word alchemy has a lot of different uses now. The idea gets deployed as a metaphor quite a bit. At this point in our story, we use alchemy in its original sense, the now-debunked practice of trying to create gold from other elements. Father and son probably came to the capital in the early years of the 17th century when thousands of Armenians fled war and unrest in their homeland. So the origins are murky, but we can pin down the moment our story really begins. March 23rd, 
1618. On that day, 22-year-old Avidus was summoned to Topkapi Palace to meet the Sultan. A few years back, I visited Istanbul, and I walked through that enormous arched gate, flanked by the Blue Mosque and the Hagia Sophia, onto the grounds of Topkapi Palace. The first thing you notice when you're inside, the executioner's block. Suffice it to say, the whole place is designed to inspire awe and intimidation. So I can understand, uh, just a little, how Avidus might have felt on that long walk that ended with him standing alone before the seat of power. Accounts differ, but we will go with what's stated in the company's history on the Zildjian website. It was Sultan Osman II who commissioned the young metalsmith Avidus Zildjian to manufacture symbols for the empire. In the same decree, the Sultan officially recognized the surname Zildjian. In modern usage, Zildjian translates to family of symbol makers. Along with a name... Young Avidus Zildjian received 80 gold pieces to get him started. Avidus spent the next five years in the exclusive service of the royal family, making symbols for the sultans. John Cohan, again. At some point, Avidus stumbled upon a process of making a bronze alloy which held its strength and temper, even when hammered and worked to a previously unimaginable thinness. The technique he discovered allowed symbols to be made with a distinct purity of tone that no other symbol had ever achieved. In the year 1623, Sultan Murad IV granted him permission to leave Top Copy Palace and strike out on his own. Avidus Zildjian founded his own company near his home in the Armenian Quarter, the Samacha district of Istanbul. In 1651, he gave his eldest son, Akam, the family business and the secret process. Avidus passed it on verbally. As best we can tell, the process was never written down until the 20th century. To this day, only four people in the world are privy to the details. So we've moved on in time and place. 1782, Vienna, Austria, at the Royal Opera House. Oh, wait, shh, it's, it's about to start. That's the overture from the Mozart opera, The Abduction from the Seraglio. It's one of the first well-known compositions that utilize Turkish symbols for drama and emphasis. How those symbols made it from the Ottoman Empire to the opera house in Vienna is a story all by itself. The Janissary Guards were the Ottomans' elite infantry units. They were tough and competent fighters, but What's important to our story is the Janissaries invented the military marching band. It was something to see. Turbaned, fiercely mustachioed men of war, carrying weapons forged from gleaming Damascus steel, strutting down the avenue in tight, disciplined formation, wearing impossibly elaborate uniforms, to the thump of the kettle drum and the smash and crash of Turkish cymbals. 
Janissary parades were a big hit in the capital. Out in the borderlands, it was a noisy, colorful way to show the Ottoman flag and keep the locals in check. European military officers who witnessed the spectacle were suitably impressed. During the middle years of the 18th century, armies across Western Europe started organizing elite parade units in imitation of the Janissaries. That influence and martial spirit started seeping into the work of Western classical composers. Mozart, Beethoven, Wagner, and others incorporated Turkish marches and the unique percussive instruments they used into their compositions. Opera, with its epic mythical storylines, was especially susceptible to the influence. Here's a real famous example, the Turkish march section from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Up to the first half of the 19th century, the Zildjian Company was a modest little enterprise that mainly sold its products to the military and the church. As the orchestral use of cymbals increased, the company grew rapidly. In 1851, Avidus Zildjian II built a schooner and sailed with his cymbals to exhibitions in Marseille, London, and Paris, opening up a larger market for Turkish cymbals. Beethoven's Ninth was first performed in 1824 in Vienna, two centuries and a half a continent removed from the small foundry and cymbal shop Avidus Zildjian started in Istanbul in 1623. Avidus Zildjian II was a shrewd guy, well-traveled cosmopolitan, fluent in several languages. He sensed an emerging market beyond military bands and devotional music. He set out to bring Zildjian cymbals to orchestras around the world and ended up doing exactly that. Here we see a notable shift in emergence. Turkish cymbals become known as Zildjian cymbals. The two terms become synonymous. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high sounding cymbals. The Book of Psalms calls for symbols and devotional music, and to this day, churches, mosques, and synagogues are a small but important market served by Zildjian. If you'll permit us, we will move from the sacred to the profane. Even the most hedonistic rock and roll charmer will tell you there is just something about the symbols on their kit. Something ephemeral, difficult to describe, special, unique spiritual. Here's Rick Mattingly, senior publications editor for the Percussive Arts Society. No one can really tell you what a symbol sounds like. They have fundamentals, overtones, undertones, sweet spots, trash, ping, sustain, definition, wash, decay. 
And then there are the hidden sounds. To the uninitiated, a cymbal is a loud, crashing, brass-sounding instrument that should only be heard from a distance. But what drummer's eyes haven't widened in amazement upon first holding an ear next to a cymbal whose recent crash had appeared to die out, only to find that the instrument has an internal hum that sounds like the purring of a kitten. It's a bit odd. It's also very cool. In the course of our research, we chatted with lots of drummers, both famous and obscure. You've heard from a couple of them already, and we've got some more teed up. There was this common thread in these conversations. You get these folks talking about their symbols, and invariably, there's this long, thoughtful pause. And then, out pours these wonderfully metaphoric descriptions. They are my colors and my contrasts. They are my punctuation marks. They help me drive home the point. They're the spice in my soup. What I use to express emotion as I play. In 1865, Avidus Zildjian II passed. The symbol-making business and the secret process went to his younger brother, Karop Zildjian. Karop was at the helm for nearly half a century, and during that span, the company did well. Karop continued to bring Zildjian symbols to new markets, notably to America, after a very successful debut at the 1873 International Exhibition in Chicago. In 1909, Karop passed it on to Aram Zildjian, whom we met a while back. We've almost made it to Zildjian in America. Right here, though, our story turns down a very dark road. As the 20th century opened, the Ottoman Empire was in the terminal stage of its long decline. The sickle man of Europe was a commonly used description. It happens all too often when countries fall on tough times. Bigots and xenophobes exploit prejudice and gin up fear and convince people to turn on each other. And the results are tragic, horrifying. The Armenians were an ethnic and religious minority in the Ottoman. At this time, in the waning days of the empire, they were about three million in number. For centuries, Armenians made notable contributions to Ottoman commerce, art, architecture, and technology. But they were not considered full citizens. The Armenians endured systematic prejudice and exploitation. That said, for a long time, there was kind of a grudging coexistence between the Armenian minority and the Turkish majority. That fell apart in the late 1800s. The first officially sanctioned massacres were in 1894. Several more large-scale atrocities occurred in the years leading up to World War I. On April 24, 1915, hundreds of Armenian leaders were lured to the capital, supposedly to attend a peace conference. They were summarily executed by the Ottoman government 
and the Armenian genocide began in grim and deadly earnest. According to the Genocide Education Project in San Francisco, roughly half of all living Armenians were exterminated during this ugly chapter of history. These survivors were mostly those who managed to flee the Ottoman Empire, and many of them came to America. And that brings us, at last, all the way back around to a naturalized American citizen, one Avidus Zildjian III of Quincy, Massachusetts. So, coming to America in 1909 probably saved Avidus Zildjian's life. Twenty years later, the Jazz Age in America would prove to be the salvation of his old-but-new family business, A. Zildjian & Company. We'll get to that, and the rock and roll years too, but first, let's geek out a little bit and learn more about how Zildjian symbols are made. Entrance Time to put on the safety glasses. Time to put on the safety glasses, right. So as we lead into the factory, we have a few historical pictures and the making a display of the making of a cast symbol. That's Aaron Jackson and yours truly. And we're about to embark on a tour of the Avidus Zildjian Company in Norwell, Massachusetts. Aaron's title is Manager of Drum Set Education at Zildjian. He's been here for 17 years, so he's a bit of a newbie by Zildjian standards. Everyone at Zildjian was wonderful during our visit, but we especially enjoyed our time with Aaron. His authentic passion for the art and science of symbol making, well, it just really shined through. Now, a comprehensive discussion of symbol making would take more time than we have, but we do want to touch on a couple of things we found especially interesting. First of all, this. No other metal in the world in this size and weight and shape will ring. That distinctive ping, you can clearly hear it over the din of the factory floor. That's Aaron using his house key to strike a blank, basically a newly smelted hunk of bronze. That bronze blank is a good half a dozen steps away from becoming a symbol, but it has an inherent and unmistakable musicality to it. That's bronze. Bronze is the musical alloy, bells and chimes and, of course, cymbals. Banjos and saxophones have key components fashioned out of bronze. Guitar and piano strings are made of phosphorus bronze. But there's something especially musical about Zildjian bronze, and this was Aaron's way of demonstrating that. It's 80% copper and 20% tin, a standard proportion for bronze that has been around for at least 5,000 years. It contains trace amounts of silver, uh, but that's not unusual either. According to Aaron, when you mine copper, you always end up with some silver too. So it's not the copper-tin proportions, and it's not the trace amounts of silver. Some have speculated these things might give Zildjian bronze its special qualities, but neither is unusual, let alone unique. So, nice try, but that ain't it. What is it then? Sorry, but that's one mystery we won't be solving today. But we were right there when it was happening. So this room that says absolutely no admittance when red light is on is the melting room. Um, in the 17 years that I've worked here, I've never been in that room. 
that's where they take the secret family recipe and mix the copper and tin together to make the most pure form of solid cast bronze you'll find anywhere in the world. Ah, uh, so the secret formula is going on right there, right now. It is. I think they're preparing for another batch. What we can tell you is that it's not the ingredients, it's the process. And that's as close as we will ever get to understanding it. But you know what? It's cool. Not every question requires an answer. Even in this information age we now live in, we are content to let it remain a mystery. Here's something that is not at all a mystery, something obvious with every step we took on the Zildjian tour. Consistency, repeatability, precision. These people are on a mission. For the folks on the shop floor, it's almost like if we just get out of the way of it by making a superbly consistent high-quality product, well, the Zildjian bronze will do the rest. The natural properties, that special sonic shimmer of Zildjian bronze will provide all the individual personality a symbol needs. And make no mistake, every symbol has its own unique personality. Like a fingerprint was how we heard it described more than once. Have you seen this room here? Yeah, this is the family vault, right? Yeah, this is the private, uh, the family's private collection of about 10,000 symbols made around 1930. Uh -huh. Very historically significant. They were the first batch of their kind which were made for a new purpose of drumming. And that was playing time on a cymbal. Right. Whereas before, the timekeeper was your snare drum. Cymbals were colors. Uh -huh. Avidus saw a change in this drumming uh, trend. Started one of the world's first artist relations departments so he could wrap his head around it and realize the timekeeper is now the symbol. Right. So we need to make symbols for those for this purpose. And the differences were they were larger, um, thinner, more conducive to playing a beat on, um, had a crash crash quality as well as a ride quality, had some tighter lathing, a different defined cup size. So we made a lot of changes that we still do today. We'll come back to Norwell for more, but let's go wide and talk a little more about the Jazz Age and what led to it. This is the story of how we begin to remember, sang Paul Simon on the landmark album Graceland. These are the roots of rhythm, and the roots of rhythm remain. Try as we might, we can't put it any more artfully than that. The roots of rhythm remain, rock rhythms, and the tools used to make those rhythms have their origins in the jazz age. It is often said that jazz music is the original, the quintessential American art form. And it's true, it really would not have been possible anywhere else. Because jazz was born of pain. In Ken Burns's superb documentary, Jazz, Wynton Marcellus says the life-affirming happy swing of jazz was a response it was something African-American musicians did to push back on what Winton called this affront to humanity. The grinding oppression of Jim Crow segregation in the American South. The first iteration of jazz was brassy, bouncy, and rhythmically complex. A blend of many things, notably ragtime and the Delta Blues. It bubbled up out of New Orleans in the closing years of the 19th century. 
By the end of the First World War, there were numerous regional strains of jazz coming out of St. Louis, Memphis, West Texas, and points north, notably Harlem and Chicago's South Side. The modern sit-down drum set evolved right here, and like any evolution, it was a response to a changing environment. Basically, it's because jazz moved indoors to smaller venues. That meant smaller ensembles fewer musicians. You needed a drummer who could multitask. So, a foot pedal for the bass drum. Another foot-powered contraption called the low boy or sock cymbal, a precursor to the hi-hat. The evolution of the drum set proceeds as jazz proceeds over the next generation, right on through to the next phase. Two big social forces pushed jazz into the American mainstream. A post-war economic boom, the Roaring Twenties, and Prohibition. Prohibition inevitably led to the opening of speakeasies, private clubs all over the country that served illegal alcohol. You're going to need some entertainment, so hire a dance band. Drinking and dancing go together like, uh, well, they go together like drinking and dancing. Jazz also got a boost from the rise of radio in America kind of an earlier version of the intertwined relationship we observed between rock and roll and television back in the second episode of our main podcast. By the end of the 20s, when it all came crashing down, swing jazz was the pop music of the day. We are leaving a lot out here, it's only fair to say that. And of course, we encourage you to set out on your own journey into American jazz. We've linked to some good resources in the show notes. The language of jazz is worth talking about a little. Jazz is often described as a musical conversation, so it's not surprising that a lot of jazz jargon has moved into the popular vocabulary. Swing, bop, hip, and groove are all terms we've borrowed from jazzers for everyday use. The terms are vivid, and so are the nicknames. In particular, jazz musicians and jazz fans love their royal titles. It's an enduring feature of jazz culture. So, let's meet some royalty. Duke Ellington, one of the most consequential and celebrated composers in all of America. The Count! Count Basie, another American icon and ace band leader whose career spanned five decades. The King of Swing! Benny Goodman, who brought swing jazz to the masses. The swing that made Benny the King came from his orchestra's supple yet powerful rhythm section. On the drum throne, anchoring that backline, the Raja of Rhythm, the legendary Gene Krupa. Gene's career spanned decades, but his work with Benny Goodman in the middle and late 30s is where he made his biggest mark. What's important to our story, Gene Krupa is widely credited as the father of the sit-down drum set, bass drum with foot pedal, tom-toms mounted on top, snare drum on stand, ride and crash cymbals on stands, and something new in those times, a foot-operated hi-hat cymbal. 
To set the record straight, calling Gene Krupa the father of the drum set is a wild overstatement. There were lots of swing drummers using that setup in those days, and they all copied each other. Chick Webb was monstrously talented. Gene freely admitted he learned his best tricks from watching Chick play. Papa Joe Jones anchored the rhythm section for Count Basie. Papa Joe was the first master of the hi-hat. Jazz and rock drummers still play the licks and riffs he developed on that most versatile and expressive of cymbals. There were so many more, we will refer you to John Cohan's superb book. He devotes two full chapters to the jazz greats and their playing styles. But right now, we will stick with Gene. He was the first sit-down drummer with star power, a big, handsome Chicagoan with movie star smile. He played slingland drums and zildjian cymbals with flash and panache, and his technique was astonishing. Gene Krupa could swing with the best of them, but he tended to play straight ahead and powerful. That and his blazing virtuosity set him apart from the crowd. And of course, you can draw a straight line from Gene Krupa to the next generation of jazz drummers like Buddy Rich and Max Roach. And to the busy, powerful rock drummers who come along another generation later. Folks like Keith Moon, Ginger Baker, and Omar Hakim. But here's the part that's essential to our story. Avidus Zildjian III met Gene Krupa pretty early on, probably around 1930 or so. According to John Cohan, they were introduced by Bill Mather, a mutual acquaintance who owned a drum shop in New York City. They became fast friends. Avidus went to shows in Boston, hit the clubs in Harlem, and then he went further, and he'd do it regular. Go to see Gene, and go to see the Duke, and the Count, and the King. He followed the music. As Gene Krupa's star began to rise, he pushed Avidus to make these cymbals bigger and thinner. Our friend Aaron Jackson explained why a few minutes back. It might seem obvious nowadays, but at the time, this was all very new. It's something that every musical maker does now. Artist relations and endorsements. It started out ad hoc and informal, but the friendship-slash-business relationship Gene and Avidus shared, that relationship set an important precedent for Zildjian and for an entire industry. It turned out to be the way forward, the way to keep a small, struggling company alive. Special for dance men. Each shipment from the Avidus Zildjian Company contains a quantity of really thin cymbals. In addition to their sharp, brilliant tone, which can be instantly damped, these cymbals possess a silver resonance found only in Avidus Zildjian. You can now have both paper-thin cymbals and real tone, if you insist on Avidus Zildjians. During those early years of the Great Depression, cruel economic fate was crushing companies all around the world. At that time, few would have given this small family business much of a chance. It was touch and go there for a while, but Avidus Zildjian III hitched his wagon to a star. And that star pulled his company through. I've always called him the Rolls Royce of symbols. That's the legendary session drummer Hal Blaine. Hal was a part of what became known as the Wrecking Crew, 
a group of crack L.A. studio cats who played together on hit after hit after hit in the 60s and 70s. Hal Blaine has played on more top ten hit songs than any instrumentalist in the history of recorded music. We carefully checked that claim, and folks, it's true. Eight Grammys, hundreds of gold records, one of just five session players in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The list goes on. And Hal, who is a hale and energetic 88 years young as we put this podcast into production, Hal Blaine loves zildjian cymbals. We bring up Hal right here because, first of all, we just enjoyed the hell out of meeting him. Second, Hal Blaine was among the first Zildjian-endorsed artists from the rock and roll era. Rock and roll. Hey, we'll get there. Let's just fill in the story a bit more. So, it was informal, but Avidus developed key relationships with swing drummers. He kind of ended up in the cymbal business by accident, but that might have helped him, in our view. He brought fresh ears and an open mind to the ancient craft, and now throw in the immigrant's special energy and verve, following the music and then following up accordingly with new products and processes kept the company from going under during the Depression. So, by the closing years of the 1930s, as darkness started to fall across Europe, Zildjian was a modest enterprise, but it was on a solid footing financially, with a respected name and a dominant market share. Once America entered World War II at the end of 1941, copper and tin were strictly rationed. Zildjian got only a modest allotment of these materials from Uncle Sam, and all but three of the company's metalsmiths went to work in war production plants. For a few years, A. Zildjian and company fell back on the market that got the company started some three centuries earlier, supplying symbols to military marching bands. Lots of American business owners grumbled about rationing and wartime production restrictions in those years. Avidus was not one of them. John Cohan, once again. Zildjian received only barely enough metal to fill government orders, but Avidus, a sincere patriot and self-described Yankee, took pride in the fact that federal buying specifications called for Avidus, Zildjian, or equal. Interesting little aside, according to Cohan, the war years marked the first and only time the secret Zildjian process has ever been written down. Both sons, Armin and Robert Zildjian, served overseas in the conflict. As a hedge against tragedy, Avidus Zildjian III undertook what must have been a sobering task. He carefully wrote out the recipe and stashed it in two places, in a vault in Quincy and in another at home. Thankfully, both Zildjian's sons made it back. So now we have made it back, at last, to the post-war era in America, to the precursor years of rock and roll. We've passed through 13 generations of Zildjians now, well over 300 years of continuous operation, through medieval palace intrigue, through the rise and fall of empires, through renaissance and industrial revolution, fleeing genocide and war across oceans, they've made it have come to land now with a firm foothold in America.
In our view, the two notable things about Generation 13 at Zildjian, the Arm and Zildjian era, are first, the modernization of the company, transforming it to the Zildjian of today, a diverse 21st century enterprise. Feet rooted in ancient tradition, vision fixed firmly ahead. And second, the deepening and widening of the treasured and symbiotic relationship Zildjian has with artists who use their symbols following the music. It was Armin Zildjian who formalized the endorsement program in the post-war years, made it an ongoing and fundamental part of the company. Artist relations is woven into the fabric of Zildjian now, and has been for as long as anyone can remember there in Norwell. Over and over, as we chatted with folks there, we heard that. Yep, that was Armand. It was Armand who got that started. The first Zildjian born in America in the year 1921, Armin Zildjian was all of eight when his great-uncle Aram, an imposing bear of a man who spoke not a word of English, came to America bearing the secret formula in his head. In later years, Armin would tell his daughter, Craigie Zildjian, who now heads the company, that he was more than a little bit frightened of Aram. He kept his baseball bat handy right by the bedroom door, just in case. As he stepped into the family business, Armin was still a young man, but he had been steeped since childhood in the family traditions. During the war years, he had, like so many men of his generation, grown up much too fast. Armin wanted to hit the ground running once he got back, and Avidus saw to it that he did. Now, right here... We think it's important to say something about endorsements and artist relations. Uh, too often, especially these days, these programs are about two things. Neither of them noble or noteworthy. The artists get free gear, and in return, the company gets to bask in the reflected glow of their celebrity. That's not how it works at Zildjian. And we know this, because we saw it for ourselves. It's all about the exchange of ideas, of techniques, what's happening, what's next. It's a nice little arrangement for the company, no doubt. Instead of Avidus and Harmon out hitting the road, now the road comes through Zildjian. Every summer, the world's foremost practitioners of the percussive arts come through to tell their stories, share what they've learned, and sample the latest wares. And meet these two guys. What I want to talk about is um, how I want to hear a nice clear stick sound because this is a ride cymbal. You can hear every beat that I'm playing. Now if I go to a crash, I want a crash that's going to project so the people out front in the band can hear it. So, in the testing room at the Avidus Zildjian Company, I got to spend some time with Leon Cipini, sound quality master, that was Leon you just heard, and his colleague, Jeff Westhaver, cymbal tester. These two guys are the last stop for a Zildjian cymbal before it heads out into the world. We'll start with Leon, who is the longest tenured employee at the Avidus Zildjian Company, 
telling us about his first day on the job. Oh, my first day, okay, is back in 1961, some uh, 56 years ago. And I was interviewed by Armin Zildjian, who was the owner of the Zildjian Company. And uh, for quite a few years, I worked side by side with Armin Zildjian, uh -huh. learning uh, the routines of testing and what to look for sound-wise in uh, uh, the symbols that we were hitting at that time. And um, he interviewed me, and of course, you come in on a uh, trial basis. So at that time, I was studying, I was playing, and I was working uh, the day job with them and side by side, and a couple of other testers at that time. Okay, we'll now turn to Jeff and how he started out with the company. My first day, 1989, October 2nd, 1989, I worked in the oven room. First day I walked in, I was an 18-year-old kid. And I walked in and we were moving metal. If you guys have seen the oven room out there, it's yeah. a hard job. It's uh -huh. a hot, hard job. And I walked in the door and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do the job. But back then in the 80s, if you couldn't do a job, you didn't do a job. They kicked you out. So I figured out how to do it. And I used to go home every day in pain and agony for three months solid just learning how to do the job. Moving the metal, pushing the metal in and out of the ovens, getting used to the heat, backbending cymbals, cupping cymbals. Hmm. And then I grew. And then in 1996, Leon was our only tester. So this is seven years later. And they wanted to get more testers in the company. Yeah, up until then, it was just you and Armand, right? Myself, Armin, we used to have uh, Lenny, Lenny DiBuzio. Oh, that's right, Lenny DiBuzio. Yes, he was good. And years ago, we had a Bob Goldstone. We've had quite a few testers uh -huh. over the years. Some stayed, some didn't stay. Mm -hmm. Whatever, yes. Yeah. So, so in 96, it was one tester, Leon. So they needed more testers. So they tested everyone in the plant. And the test is they take six or seven symbols of the same kind of symbol, and you have to separate them from tuner to standard which is the best symbol to the worst symbol in the bunch. And I went through the list, never hit a symbol before, right down the list up until the last two symbols. And I swapped the last two. So I could hear what I was listening for. I just needed training to, to begin. And that's when my training began with Leon back in 1996. Were you the judge, Leon? <laughs> he has great ears. Yeah, yeah, ears. yeah, yeah. That's something you gotta be born with. On the, right. on the uh, sound truck that we have come through here. Mm -hmm. He was right on the top. He was right up there. Yeah, and it's just a beginning. And then this job just gets experience-based. And the more and more you do, the better you get. So a little over 20 years ago, Jeff started training with Leon. These two gentlemen are the final arbiters of symbol quality at Zilchin. More than 75 years, a full lifetime of experience between them. So Jeff mentioned the tuner symbol and the standard. Here's Hugo Pinksterboer from The Symbol Book explaining what that means and how it's applied. The Zildjian testers have a standard and a tuner symbol of each type at their disposal. Those symbols can be used as reference points for doubtful cases. The tuner is closest to the Zildjian preferred sound of that type of symbol. The standard represents the largest permitted aberration of that sound. Leon mentioned the sound truck. He's talking about a mobile audiology lab. These gents get regular hearing tests. It's one of the job requirements. In addition to their everyday duties testing batches of cymbal, and Jeff and Leon work with Zildjian clients, sit-down drummers, orchestral players, composers, and conductors. 
They brainstorm, collaborate, and use a little trial and error to find each client's specific need and meet it. Talking about this part of their job really got these guys fired up. You could see how much they love sharing their knowledge and how much they care. On this aspect of their work, Leon deferred to his protege. So let's hear it from Jeff. This, but this is the it's maximum what, you can get. It's that what, the, or it's that. what your okay. ear prefers, what you prefer to play, what goes with your setup. It's everything can change. It's you telling us. We make the tools for people to create with. We are just giving you the tools to create with. We want you to create. Right. And to be yourself. Because that's mm -hmm. where you speak from, is your, from your ride and your hi-hats, and you accentuate with your crashes. Mm -hmm. So it's all about emotions and all about the speaking from your kit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why we do it. And the same thing with the orchestra players, right? Sure they, they look at things that way as well, right? How the cymbals are played at a low volume, how the cymbals open up in the middle and at the end. How they do it all the way through the range of playing hand cymbals. Mm -hmm. It's the same beautiful instrument all the way through. How you speak from your kit. A nice turn of phrase, Jeff. Uh, let us know if you want a podcasting gig. Here's one more from Jeff. He wanted to share his favorite symbol with us. Go ahead, Jeff. This symbol is a KCON 22-inch medium thin low. Okay? It's a jazz symbol, and it's K, so it's going to be a little bit lower in sound, a little bit darker. But it is beautiful. It's warm. The symbol is a warm symbol. Yeah. Right? I'm hitting a piece of metal, 80% copper, 20% tin, with a stick. And that is warm. You can feel that down here. It's warm. It's like a gong. That's it just the goes on it. forever. It just goes on forever. That's the beauty of that symbol. Right. And it's a piece of metal. Yeah. Beautiful. Warm. You can feel it. You can feel the warmth in it. It's a piece of metal with a wooden stick. I know. It's, just, it's beautiful. It amazes me every time no. I hear one. Do you think he likes what he's doing? I think he <laughs> loves what he's doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Jeff Westhaver on a roll. <laughs> we'll close it out with his heartfelt tribute to his friend and mentor, Leon Cipini. There's still more for me to learn from him. He hasn't taught me everything, and he still teaches me every day. And it's, and it's an honor and a privilege. To, yeah. you know, Thanks, Jeff. To know him. Leon and Jeff were an absolute blast to spend time with, and we hate to leave, but we have to tell the final chapter. It opens on a moment most rock and roll fans will recognize, even if they weren't yet alive at the time. Sunday evening, February 9th, 1964, when the Beatles came to America. 65 million televisions, the largest audience in the history of the world at that point. John, Paul, George, and up on that riser, grinning and keeping time on his Ludwig drums and Zildjian cymbals, Ringo Starr. A thousand, ten thousand, a million. Who knows how many new drummers were born that evening in living rooms all across America. What we do know is that by the summer of that year, the Avidus Zildjian company was backordered, way behind unable to keep up with demand, and they would stay backordered for more than a decade. To meet the demand, Zildjian expanded and expanded again, but by the end of the 60s, the original facility in Quincy was woefully inadequate to the task.
Oh, baby, that's beautiful. Drummers who worked with Armin Zildjian, and that was just about all of them, always seem to throw out that phrase when they are asked what he was like. Just beautiful. As a boy, Armin Zildjian would skip school to go meet the big-name drummers who came to his dad's cymbal factory. Since he was already there most of the time anyway, Avidus put him to work in the melting room starting at age 14. Armin Zildjian was a guy who made a lasting impression, a ball of energy, hard-working and fun-loving, relentlessly optimistic. He'd flash his wide, gap-toothed grin and greet everyone who came through with beautiful. Armin also became a proficient musician in his own right, drums, piano, and he especially enjoyed playing the trumpet. After the war, Armin took over manufacturing at Zildjian. Avidus continued on as CEO, but as the years went on, he handed more and more responsibilities over to his eldest son. In 1976, Armin Zildjian took over as CEO. So we talked about artist relations. Armin Zildjian's other legacy is the factory itself in Norwell, Massachusetts, where I recorded a lot of the bits you've been hearing throughout the podcast. That expansion and upgrade occurred in the early 70s, and once the new facility was up and running, Zildjian finally was able to catch up with demand. As for the new plant, well, as Armin himself might have said, it's beautiful. Well, let's not get carried away here. It's a nondescript building in an office park in Norwell, Massachusetts. It's nice inside, though, and throughout our visit, we were impressed with how seamlessly Zildjian integrates the best of the old and the new. The alloy is the same. The basic process will never change. But still, it's a long way from that stone building with a coal-fired oven sitting on a dirt floor, where... Avidus I made symbols in Istanbul some four centuries ago. The linguistic term onomatopoeia has its origins in the Greek language. It literally translates to the sound I make. Onomatopoeia is often deployed as humor, Boing, splat, cuckoo. Armin heard these kinds of descriptions, especially from jazz musicians. I need a big splash here. I want a louder chick there. He took these artsy, vivid descriptors back to his factory and applied the science, forged them, made them manifest in new types of symbols. on the shop floor, everything is clean, efficient, and careful. The oven is no longer a big coal-fired box. It's round, which facilitates even temperatures throughout, and it's gas-heated with a superbly accurate digital thermostat. The precision lathes and hammers are mostly computer-controlled. The bronze shavings and dust are carefully swept up and recycled at the end of the day. 
One can sense the purpose here. The people at Zildjian are just so passionate and engaged in what they are doing. This really is a lot more than just a job to them. It's not hard to understand why Zildjian has so many veteran employees, folks who have been there for decades. One last stop in Norwell, into the big office to meet the boss, Craigie Zildjian, 14th of her name, maker of symbols, and the chief executive officer of the Avidus Zildjian Company. Ms. Zildjian now leads the company into a challenging, uncertain future. Here in 2017, manufacturers of musical instruments, for the first time in nearly a century, are serving a shrinking market. Zildjian enjoys a generous share of the market on cymbals, about 65%, but they no longer have the field to themselves. There are now competitors. And just the same, our money's on Zildjian being able to meet the challenges, to survive, adapt, and prosper. Four centuries of success inspires a certain confidence. Ms. Zildjian started in 1976 as the Human Resources Manager. She was handed the reins in 1999, right before the calendar flipped into a new millennium. Her father and grandfather followed an ancient recipe, but they diversified and adapted the product of that recipe to keep pace with changing times and changing tastes. In doing so, they reimagined and reinvented an ancient instrument for the modern age. The roots of rhythm remain, but time and experience have deepened and strengthened those roots. As the first woman to head up America's oldest family business, Craigie is committed to diversity in every sense of the word. Here's Craigie on how that commitment to diversity started. Let's talk about you joining the, the company mm. in 76. Mm. Uh, this was, was, it, was this your grandfather's idea? Did mm-hmm. I understand that right? That, yeah. that uh, you and Debbie should join the, mm-hmm. the factory. Yeah. I mean, join the family business. Yeah. He, he, he kept saying, you know, there are women in business now. There are women who run businesses. And because you have to, it was a very different era in 1976. Of course, you have this whole women's lib movement and so on. But, um, you know, what you'd hear as a woman is, well, why should we give you a job? Because we should need to give some, a man a job who's supporting a family. Why would we give that job to a woman? You know, so it, was, it was tough. It was tough to um, break through. Craigie also redefined policy on how family will work inside the company to avoid conflict and to protect the Zildjian name. Zildjian family members have to first attend college preferably a business program, and then work for a few years at another company before they are brought on. No family member can work under the supervision of another family member. Nothing is guaranteed. It's a meritocracy. The Zildjian name will get you the opportunity, yes, but that's it. It might seem surprising that a woman is now running a company that was a patriarchal enterprise for over 350 years. Uh, But remember, it was Sally Goodale Zildjian who convinced her husband, Avidus, to bring the symbol business to America in the first place. Sally's contribution is memorialized with the S-line of Zildjian symbols. The S-line is uh, really in honor of my grandmother, Sally Zildjian, who had, had a role here in the business that not everybody really is aware of that. 
Uh-huh. And it's the first time that a woman has been recognized on a line of symbols. My grandmother's family bankrolled the venture going back into the symbol business. Oh, that was uh, her family. It was her family yeah. that uh, supplied the, yeah. the and, money to build this, the yeah. factory. Mm-hmm. And, and as, as you've said, um, she was the one who helped convince my grandfather that he should do this. Oh, this, pa, this is such a romantic story. You, you, know, you can't really um, walk away from your, your history here, your destiny. So I, I think if, if my, my father tells it that if my grandmother hadn't done that, we wouldn't have con- you know, continued this symbol business. Right. Could have right, fallen right, apart. Right, right. And again, while it's critically important, Zildjian's employment practices are just one aspect of the company's diversity. In 2010, they diversified operations. Craigie Zildjian engineered a merger with the Vic Firth Company, the world's largest manufacturer of drumsticks and mallets. In 2011, they diversified their own product with Zildjian's Gen 16 acoustic electric cymbal system. A few years from now, in 2023, the oldest family-owned business in America will celebrate their 400th year in the symbol manufacturing business. It'll be something to remember, hopefully for another 400 years. Drummers from around the world over will come to Norwell to celebrate the passion, the diversity, the future of Zildjian. And the next day, the people of Zildjian will go back to work, building that future one batch of symbols at a time. Alchemy is the medieval forerunner of chemistry. For millennia, metallurgists toiled in vain, trying to create gold, operating on the mistaken assumption that gold was a compound, rather than the element we now understand it to be. Avedisildjian I was one of those alchemists. His tinkering and endless trial and error never would, and never could, create gold. But he did create something precious, something even more valuable the company you keep. Before there were tech startups and multinationals, before there was an industrial revolution, there was the family business. It's the fundamental unit of organized commerce, a cornerstone of civilization. Fathers and mothers, daughters and brothers working together, creating a product and bringing it to market. The company you keep. Artists dream, scientists work behind the scenes. The lathe spins forward as the sparks fly upward. Elements fuse to form a compound. The Avidus Zildjian Company. The company you keep. Before we close it out today, some acknowledgements. First, to Zildjian artists and drumming legends Hal Blaine, Omar Hakim, and Bob Henreid. These three gentlemen generously shared their time and their special insights with us. Second, a big R&RAP thank you to Paul Francis, Director of Symbol Innovation, and to Dan Wiseman, Director of Marketing. Aaron, Leon, and Jeff, you guys were great. Thank you so much. And of course, last and certainly not least, Craigie Zildjian. 
they are either the explosions or the fairy dust, Focus you know, depending on how you with the symbol starts with the choice i'm christian swain and this has been deeper digs in rock a production of the rock and roll archaeology project so nice of you to stop by we thank you and we hope to see you again soon oh hey i almost forgot keep up the rockin all right omar hakeem take us home Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.